Welcome to the doghouse. I'm Nadim Majid, as usual, with uh, Watchdogs co-founder, CEO, and data wizard, Yudan Chief David email Gurakna. officer. Chief email officer as well. Uh, great response we've been having uh, from the public uh, this past week, especially, well, actually, this past couple of months. Uh, but Yudha, I'd like to start off by talking about uh, some of the key fact checks mm -hmm. we've done. Mm -hmm. uh, starting with a tweet by Sri Lanka's most famous music producer, oh God. Mr. Ratna, who tweeted that, uh, uh, you know, international media was conflating uh, the protest movement with terrorism. He didn't say that international media was conflating, he hinted that Oh look, the Suddhas are saying we are terrorists because of the protests. And this is very misleading, right? Because yes, the US and the UK did issue travel advisories, but they noted that the travel advisory language had not been updated since 2019. Now in 2019, that was literally the birth of, birth of Watchdog, we had bombs going off, so those mm. travel advisories basically said, don't go to Sri Lanka, there's terrorism happening. They just haven't updated the text. And Iraj is using this in a very misleading sense because he's also harping about how, oh, are you having fun now, protesters? You've effectively killed tourism to this country. Yeah. Which is and a this rather is interesting something we've seen from a lot of uh, sort of influential figures in Sri Lanka society. Yes, it's like this general theme like of, hey guys, let's stop protesting because tourism. This is really interesting because tourism pre-COVID was about 12% of the GDP. Now, this, this particular set of influencers, shall we say, they didn't speak about the impact on garments and textile manufacturing, which is arguably more important. Uh, they didn't speak about rice production, uh, when food production, food production is critical. They didn't speak about uh, how government policy has mismanaged our electrical grid to the point where like, you and I, last week, we yeah. did this podcast as an Instagram live in the dark yeah. with our phone And torches. we're re-recording it now because that may have not been the brightest of ideas. <laughs> no, because uh, there was the Tukai outside yeah. who I later learned was trying to charge a battery okay. to run a light off of, right? And that guy was revving his engine. Now, we thought he was being catastrophically wasteful on fuel, but this is how bad it's get where you have yeah. to use your three-wheeler to charge your battery so your children have some light in the house. Yeah, and that's just sad. And uh, on a more sobering note, uh, today, the day we're recording, which is Monday, uh, we saw the eighth uh, death in a fuel queue. And uh, that really, you know, takes the, gives the actual tone of the crisis that the country is facing, even though uh, we're trying as much as possible to be yeah. Uh, positive yeah. and jovial. Hashtag positive vibes only. Hashtag positive vibes only. It really shows the extent of the crisis that the country is facing. And there's an interesting element to this as well in how this is being covered in what you, for want of a better word, would call the Western media. And just to highlight this, uh, I'd like our, viewers, our listeners to listen to this clip from CNN's Farid Zakaria. Now I want to close this program with a final thought about the crisis in Ukraine, or rather about the crises being set off around the world because of the war in Ukraine. In Sri Lanka, a country that had been reforming and growing after years of civil war, the government faces massive protests 
has seen most of its cabinet resign and much of its parliamentary support erode, all triggered by huge spikes in prices. Now, you know, you heard what Mr. Zakaria had to say, and uh, is it really because of the... I mean, he adds a caveat at the end of that, where he says that, uh, look, this uh, 20 years of uh, economic mismanagement, but that's almost as an afterthought. How the Western media, and also Indian media, interestingly, has been covering this, has always had this sort of inherent biases that they have in their coverage. In the Western media, it tends to be, as you just heard Farid Zakaria say, oh, it's all because of the Ukraine, the war in the Ukraine. In Indian media, it's, it's a Chinese debt trap. No, we've yeah, actually we've actually run the numbers on this. Both of what they're saying is bullshit. Because if let's look at the Western claim first. Yes, Sri Lanka's tourism is largely built around Ukrainians and Russian nationals coming here for holiday. That's fine. But as we just said earlier, tourism was twelve percent of the GDP before COVID. So during you know, from twenty nineteen to now. The whole world has been dealing with the pandemic, and so have we, and largely the lights have stayed on. Mm. So you can't really say Ukraine, Ukrainian, Russian, uh, sort of this, this conflict that's happening. Look, it's massive war. Like, like, like he says, the price hikes. Yes. Uh, so then let's get on contributed. Yes. It's then let's get on to the fuel, yeah. because a large percentage of our generation in this country does come from thermal power, which is coal, which is diesel. Now, this problem that we're having now is not new because mm. we did this piece on electricity generation in Sri Lanka, whereas in 2019, the CB in its annual reports was saying, look, we've had problems this year. We haven't has had as much hydropower being generated. Mm. We were forced to use a lot more thermal capacity and we are losing five rupees and 80 cents on every unit that we are generating with thermal power. Mm. So these are these are known problems. It isn't like any of this stuff is new. Mm. So sure the you know the difficulty of getting cheap fuel would have impacted us, would definitely have tilted the balance. But this balance has been tilting for the last twenty plus years. Mm. And I think that's what we highlighted in our piece on the economy, yeah. where you know we have had falling while we've had increasing GDP to GDP per capita. Mm. Person. We have had a decreasing tax rate, which mm. is devastating because now the government doesn't have revenue. Our exports as a share of GDP has been dropping, again devastating because that's loss of government revenue. So now you have a government that is catastrophically unable to deal with outlier events, mm. which is something going wrong. This is a government that is built on the premise of, sure, we all mathematically in the toilet, we will literally sit here and have positive vibes and nothing nothing worse will happen, which yeah. is a failure of planning. It's a failure of basic statistics. It's a yeah. failure of basic foresight. Yeah, so a call out to uh, international journalists uh, that may or may not be listening into our podcast. Uh, if you do hear this, uh, yeah, economic check mismanagement check and lack of foresight is not an afterthought. It is the primary point. It is the primary point because for the, for the last so many years, we've been taking on so much in loans yeah. 
we've been taking on so much in project loans, but even worse, once we sort of were classified as a middle-income country, we've been taking on more international sovereign bonds, yeah. which are loans that are particularly brutal in how repayment works. And this brings us to the problem with debt. Are we in a Chinese debt trap? Actually, no. The bulk of our loans are to international finance markets. Yeah. China does show up on our debt figures, but not not in any way that makes you go, this is a debt trap. Well, there is the argument to be made that the uh, previous administration's uh, officials constantly make is that, oh, we had to raise so much in ISPs in order to pay off the Chinese project loans, which also is kind of somewhat uh, true, as Umesh pointed out on the previous episode of The Doghouse. But again, Chinese debt trap is almost a misnomer. Because, and but the thing is, like, the loans that they were paying off, the project loans, they were not purely Chinese. Exactly. There's lots of project loans there for lots of different projects from quite a few different countries. Mm. So at no point can you come in and say, hang on, China, give these people money, let them build stuff, ask them to pay it back and screw them over. No, it, it from the map, we screwed ourselves over. By the Sri Lankan people have been put into a debt trap by their own, by their own government. And, and this is what I want to say to Western journalists and even Indian journalists. Don't take our agency away from us. It's the last bloody thing we have left. Yeah, and also to the international economists, particularly in the Cato Institute. Stop proposing currency boards. We don't it's have not going to happen. Yes, we don't have foreign currency to run a currency board with. On, on the subject of debt, actually, there's this uh, clip. There's a series of videos, uh, uh, interviews that we did with Dr. Rohan Samarajeeva, uh, founder Learn Asia, also a member of the National Movement for Social Justice. Where he was working with Karujai. Um, yeah, working with uh, Kar former speaker Karujai Surya. And this is what he had to say on debt going to the IMF and having a stable income. If you look at it from the perspective of the people who are suffering, they are suffering because they have no, no electricity in their homes, they have no fuel for their vehicles, there there's no, no way to cook the food, and the food is expensive. These are the, this is how the crisis manifests itself for them. Now, if we drill deep into that, you'll see that the problem is we have no dollars. Why do we have no dollars? Because we have been piling up a lot of debt and big debt payments are coming due and we can't roll them over because we have messed up our debt management strategies. So that is our highest priority. That has to be, but there is a bit of a choice here. That is, you can pay the debt on time or you can let the people live and let the companies function. Now, the government so far has been prioritizing this former aspect of somehow squeezing out every single dollar that is available and, and paying the debt, paying our creditors. We can't do that. We, we can't take it anymore. That's what our people are saying. That's what our companies are saying. We need to prioritize the basic needs of our people. The whole point in a debt negotiation is that you must have a stable, credible entity on our side. And that's the government and the central bank. These are the people who are responsible for the negotiation, right? So we, we, we are shaking on, on a stable, credible government at this moment, right? So we must have the political will to appoint a law firm within the next two weeks to negotiate with, on, with, the, with the bondholders 
and we must write a stronger letter. We have written a letter. It's a kind of a vapid, weak letter that we have said we like to talk to the IMF. We should write to the IMF saying we want to enter into a program with the IMF. This is all about trust and perception management. We have to give our creditors a, a, a feeling that we are serious about resolving this problem. We have to create confidence among all the players. And the way to do that is to tell the truth and to tell it in a credible manner using credible people. We don't have those things in place right now. The executive has failed completely. I think we need to throw the executive out of this equation. We need to run it through Parliament, through the legislature. Coming back from what uh, Dr. Samrajiva had to say, uh, the thing about having a stable entity in government that is able to deal with the IMF, negotiate with our bondholders. Um, it's very interesting because you look at what the protests are calling for. Uh, singular main cause which go is... Go home, go to. And there's people actually calling for elections. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Samajeeva also pointed out that, look, you're calling for elections, you need to know, the public needs to know what happens after. Promise to it. So I think even before we go to after, we first have to understand the constitution of Sri Lanka. If the president leaves or is incapable of performing his duties, or is there, there are mechanisms for voting him out, no confidence motions, etc. Any of that, if any of that happens, power then passes to the Prime Minister, who right now is Mahindra Rajapaksa. If the Prime Minister also goes, power then passes to the Speaker. And who's the Speaker right now? It's Mahindra Rajapaksa. Hey. So, the constitution of Sri Lanka is such that you cannot, uh, you cannot ask a president to leave because you cannot slot in another guy like that. There are mechanisms set in place. There's a line of succession. There's a line of succession because you have to plan for failures in these sorts of things. And that's what the Sri Lankan constitution has been set up to do. If this guy at the top is no longer, is incapacitated, someone else has to step up. And there is, there is that, that, that process that you cannot circumvent without nuking the entire constitution and starting at the end of the day uh, you know even if you're asking to at the end of the day whoever comes as president uh, you like prime minister then speaker but of course parliament does have the ability to elect from amongst their own someone as president so to all the protesters that are shouting for you know the president to leave and for all 225 to leave what they also need to realize is that under our current constitution, you need a functioning, to their yes, office that's a, that's is going to come from that 225 yes. that are currently there. You and we can't, we cannot afford to have an election. As Dr. Samaji pointed out, the last election that we had cost about 10 billion rupees, plus we don't have paper to even run we examinations. We don't have time for this stuff. We don't have time. Because the problem is we have to make a massive debt repayment in June. That's, a, that's to the tune of a billion dollars. As of about a couple of days ago, when even I had this chat, the Sri Lankan government's forex reserves were at $1.9 billion. Mm. At $1.9 billion, we are having trouble keeping the lights on. Mm. It's going to get much worse unless we restructure that debt. Mm. So we need to solve the short-term problem of how do we keep our lights on? Because without that, industry is already starting to fail. We are getting so many anecdotal uh, reports of people shutting down not just tech services 
and companies yeah. like that, but farms, garment industries, restaurants, restaurants, right? The basic functioning of an economy, the basic function of how we eat, how we conduct our lives. We need to solve the debt issue first. Then we need to figure out who else we put in power. Now there will have to be elections at a point. There will definitely be elections at a point. But until then, we also have to realize that I would say the thing that is right by our hearts is to send them home. Definitely. The thing that is right by our heads is to keep them there and make sure that they stay with their asses in the seat until they solve the problem that they've put us into and then send them home. Because of course there are multiple reports of stolen wealth. For example, I was reading an ICRJ article on the Panama Papers where there was an extensive profile. Pandora Papers. Uh, sorry, the Pandora Papers. Where there was an extensive profile done rather recently as well on the Rajapaksas. And the estimates that they had given were up to about $10 billion squirreled away, particularly in places like Dubai. And these are, of course, not numbers that they had confirmed. These are numbers that government officials leaving had sort of casually mentioned. That's a significant amount of money. Recovering that money, you know, the whole slogan of give us back our looted wealth, recovering that money is not easy. It's mm -hmm. going to take us a couple of years, far more, because you have to understand that the Sri Lankan police, the Sri Lankan justice system has absolutely no authority in many of these places mentioned in the Pandora Papers. Neither do most bodies, in fact, neither do most governments. That's why these places are typically used for money laundering. So even in instances where we can find out exactly how much was sent out, and we can somehow find some magic involved, figure out where that money is, in which bank account, getting it back will still take years. Mm. We don't have years. We've seen plans that have come from multiple institutions, yeah. right? from, uh, I think, uh, Day Very Day had a few, Advocata. Advocata uh, the Century Movement had a list of 12 demands. Professor uh, Professor also. The National yeah. Movement for Social Justice has a list of demands. You need to like look at all of these things and look at like the work of what's workable, what where is their common ground, and how can we have this stable energy yes. negotiation? And like, at the same time, you look at like the plans that the political parties are putting forward. Most recently, the Samuel Jana Palavega. Complete box. It's it's not an action plan. It, it's it's a, a plan. It's the level of thinking that I would expect from a fresh intern who had just been told put something together for the meeting with the CEO. Right, there is no thinking there at all no, because I it's mean, the same crap. What's, what's there in it is basically stating the obvious. We need to avoid a disorderly default. We need to. We know that we, yes, we, we need, need to do this. We need how to, we need to talk question. to these guys. We need to talk to those guys. Tell us how. how. That's what the public. That's what the business community. That's what every stakeholder in Sri Lanka, even our creditors, that's what they want to that's hear as well. That's what they want to know as well. How are you going to do it? What What are you going to do? What taxes are you going to raise? What public spending programs are you going to cut? Where are you going, are you to, going to cut? To what, are the, what are the tough decisions that have to be made? And where on that dividing line do you fall? Because yeah. that's important. Because what everyone's are your targets, going, what are your projections? Yes, everyone's going, oh, we need to make tough decisions. Are you going to for example, keep Sri Lankan airlines running. 
Are you going to shut it down? Like, what is your stance on that? Yeah, what are you no, going to do? Yeah, so this is just a bunch of shower thoughts. We're approaching the question of what can we do? What can we do? So this is interesting because we have been getting a bunch of questions, uh, all, mostly from Instagram, also from Twitter, of people writing in and people tagging us in ideas and going, can't we do this? Hmm. Now, this is, this is really interesting, right? Because I love the fact that people are looking at these problems hmm. and going, hang on, things are solvable. It's great. Yes, they are. They are. The only problem is that some of these solutions aren't necessarily well-informed. They're what we think of as like dad wisdom, where when something is said authoritatively with a lot of force, it appears to make a lot of sense until you look at the math. So we are doing this thing called Ask Watchdog where people send us questions yeah. and we are giving common sense answers, right? We are not giving the, here is the mathematically optimal path forward. We're just saying, good idea. Let's look at it. Let's run it through the smell test. So let me give you like four things that we've been asked. Um, there's, there's 20 more to come, but let's look at four right now. Uh, the first is if you look at successful countries like China, they earn massive amounts of foreign currency through exports. That's especially mm. luxury goods, electronics and fashion. Why can't we do the same? So here is sort of the counter argument. Firstly, China is large. Right, it's huge. 1.4 billion people, that's 18% of the people alive in the world right now. Sri Lanka has a population of 21 million. So for context, China is about 66.76 times the size of Sri Lanka. Mm. Then there is this thing of, okay, that doesn't just mean a large labor force. It means there is a naturally enormous domestic market, yeah. which, is, which is how companies like Xiaomi, you know, one of these electronics yeah. exporters, that's how they rise and that's how they Xiaomi, thrive. Huawei, Huawei, all of Oppo, these companies yeah. rise out of these domestic markets. There's cutthroat competition. There's also massive amounts of innovation happening because there are hundreds of millions of people who will make your product, buy your product. Hmm. And they're just there, right? Then there is this also rather interesting thing that China has. Uh, it has for the longest time been almost entirely self-sufficient in energy. China has incredible coal resources. They've actually expo been exporting coal. They have hydroelectric resources. They even have petroleum. Yeah. So They're even exporting coal power plants. Exactly. So this problem that we have of keeping the lights on because we can't import fuel, they don't have that problem. They won't have that problem, which means even if something catastrophically wrong happens to a Chinese economy, it can keep the lights on, which means it can keep industries running. Yeah. So this is... It can at least keep its domestic economy running. Yes. So this is really the a bad example. It is. And I just like to point out one, one other thing about yeah. China as well is that, you know, when we make that comparison of, uh, you get a lot of uh, sort of people that make this, oh, we need this industrialization push in China, in Sri Lanka. And like, yeah, we needed that in Sri Lanka a couple of decades ago. Yeah. China has spent several decades yeah. becoming an industrial superpower. And that becoming the world's factory like you there were people uh, who transitioned out of yeah. you know uh, from a primarily agricultural labor force to people working in yeah. in industries and, um, and in sri lanka we don't have that they've been having reforms on this sort of steering their economy towards this since 1978 yeah. and the road there has been brutal i think the narrative logic here is people look at 
what countries implemented socialism that's you know mm-hmm. sri lanka china russia all these countries and can't we do what they did no you can't because well i mean if you look at the history of china you, are you really ready to kill off millions of people the answer yes. is probably not google great leap forward Yes, right. There are, and even now, China has massive poverty problems. Uh, it's the structure of the economy is still pretty yeah. brutal, especially across urban-rural splits. So there are places that we can take lessons from. Hmm. There are places we can't. Where fundamentally there's a resource difference, there's a human resource difference, and there are you know certain things that. Let's get on to the the next question on our FAQs. What 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 are people asking? Um, so there is this interesting thing of uh, universities that bring in foreign students and foreign currency. This is actually a f- an interestingly solid idea at at a point, right? Because the idea is if we export education, unemployed degree holders could also get jobs. So foreign currency coming in that's fantastic, and this is on a level true. Like uh, in 2015, it was estimated that foreign students generated about 25.8 billion pounds. for the uk economy that amount of money right now is huge the thing that we need to think about is why would people come here we do have foreign students sort of to a degree coming here as well from the maldives uh, anecdotally if i recall from kenya yes uh, we do have foreign students we do here. we do but if you look at the local education system if you take our pride and joy the 25 national universities that we have they great right like we've worked with plenty of mortal grads i've taught a bunch of them um, we have plenty of resident economists is a kalambo grad and also the kalambo grad right um they're fantastic people but if you look at the ranking of these universities in times higher education cwr top universities you notice that they're behind hundreds and in some cases like in the thousands that's where the ranking is when people fly abroad to get an education they're not really just flying out to be taught the course syllabus yeah. they're looking for a name to put on their cv that it means something yes that means international acceptance so when you say for example university of oxford versus university of bolton there's a fundamentally different record levels of recognition happening when you take it across the world right they may these two graduates may know the same thing they may be equally competent but that oxford person is going to get weighted much higher mm-hmm. so these are things that we have to think through the second thing that we have to think through is in 2010 the government uh, tried to allow the setting up of private universities there were reports of talks with up to 15 foreign universities like monash and beijing state so what happened next was protests and unrest across all of 25 uh, sri lanka's national universities and their viewpoint was the protesters viewpoint was they work hard for education which is true and that this would create this sort of two tiered structure of education where a lot of resources go to private education and even less go to public mm. now i would personally argue that the two tiered structure is already here because people with money go abroad get the degree come back so this or for you know the private higher education institutions that are offering like external degrees etc exactly. already exactly so this stif- stuff is already here but to move forward on this we genuinely need to address these grievances it isn't just as simple as saying well the future is here old man it needs to be a lot more systemic like we need to understand like if we can set up a scheme out where some of these foreign currency earnings from private universities 
go to funding the public education system. Now that's a nice system of incentives, mm. but we need to think in those terms instead yeah. of just saying you s you shut up, we'll do this. But again, these are all again very long term. Uh, these are long term. Right. These are very it's, long term. It's not something that you can implement uh, right now in two weeks. Yeah. Um, the next one that we're getting is like Sri Lanka has a 46% digital interest rate. Why don't we take advantage of that to create industries like BPO and IT services? Now this is a good idea, right? Um, the definition of literacy used doesn't quite isn't quite great. We looked at the Department of Census Statistics, and what they say is a person aged five to sixty-nine will be considered computer literate if they can use a computer on their own. For example, even a five-year-old child, if they can play a computer game, they're considered computer literate. Not great. Yeah. So we looked at some more recent data from Asia, and we looked at like how many people report themselves being able to search for information, create logic, create logins, install an app, and guess what? It's actually higher than 49% in most cases. Mm -hmm. We're talking past the 50% mark in some cases, past the 70% mark. So good, this idea has meet. Uh, and good ideas like this get picked up, right? Uh, in fact, like significant efforts have been made in Sri Lanka. There's a whole wave of like 300 companies here that exist because of BPO. And, you know, Slascom has been pushing BPO for a while. Mm. The problem is you can't do BPO if you don't have electricity. Mm. Um, so this isn't like waving the idea away altogether. But, but again, it's midterm. Yes, it's midterm because you also have to understand that if we are trying to keep this sort of thing running, we are competing in a global market. It's not enough to be good because there are others who are good. India, for example, has literal millions in the industry. Yeah. We can never afford those numbers. There's Pakistan, there's Bangladesh. In the SARC region alone, there's a lot of competition. So what happens when our power goes out and our industries can't function? Other people who can and will take up the slack they will take up mm. the slack. Yudha, I want to talk to you about um, uh, some of the things that Watchdog is doing right now when you said what we can do. Uh, one of the things that we've been getting a great response for is uh, in the midst of all of this, it came to light that the country is facing a severe shortage uh, crisis. Uh, some in the health sector have called it a healthcare emergency. Uh, severe shortage in medicines, consumables, and equipment. Yeah. Uh, so I know Watchdog, we've uh, reached out to doctors, uh, so healthcare we, professionals, uh, and asked them to. Yeah, we've, we've got been getting more into this crowds, more into crowdsourcing intelligence, right? Because our audience are also people who care, who want to do something, and we believe, we genuinely believe that like citizen journalism is not a new thing, but we genuinely believe that people with smartphones. You have more processing power in your hand than the US, the system that runs nuclear defense in the US. Um, and people can use it, people do use it. They've been sending us protest stuff. We've tracked now 191 protests and Reuters is using that data. So Nisal, who is a CTO, when he realized that this healthcare emergency was happening, he put together this form that invites doctors to fill in what is missing, what is required, and also give us, and this is important because for this kind of stuff, we need to call and verify. Because the last thing we want here is a medical, like medicine black market mm. of random pieces of paper floating around saying, oh, we are missing this, so give us this. 
So we have this form that doctors are filling in across the country, stating their hospital, their designation, the, the medicine that they so deeply require. We've reached out to the people in charge of donations and health coordination from the government side. We've also reached out to civil society and organizations that are actually trying to do something and trying to get these donations there. So what I'll do is I'll let Nisal actually explain the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, on that note, I want to actually talk to Nisal about what it is we're seeing with this crowdsourced intelligence. <coughs> All right, so I've evicted Yudanjaya and I'm joined now by our CTO, Nisal Periyaparama, for his first run in the doghouse, Nisal. So let's talk about the, uh, the form that we put up for doctors to uh, fill in with you know, the shortages. What is it exactly that we're asking for? So it's a very, um, first of all, there were a lot of these requests flying around on social media, mm. and we wanted to get a broader picture of the actual medicine shortages around the country. Um, so that was the first step. Uh, and also we didn't want to make a public call at the very beginning because we wanted people inside the medical industry, like the healthcare system to actually respond. Because mm -hmm. if we have a lot of random, well-meaning citizens contributing to these things, we'll have to sort through the data and make sure everything's valid. Yeah, and uh, we want to point out to uh, the people that are engaged with Watchdog on social media as well, uh, we love the work that people have been doing, partnering with us in keeping our protest tracker up to date. But this particular exercise involves a very specialized uh, target, which is doctors around the country, and we want them to be filling this in. So we don't want uh, sort of a job made a lot harder by people adding in uh, hearsay about uh, sort of medical shortages. So. Uh, Ordinary citizens, please do keep engaged, send, keep sending in your questions. Uh, we'll answer that in the Ask Watchdog section. Uh, please do continue to send in uh, reports of you know, protests around the country, which we can add to our tracker. Uh, we're crowdsourcing intelligence here, and your input is very valuable. But this particular exercise is extremely focused and is time sensitive as well given the crisis that we're facing. Uh, Nisal, why did we specifically think that this was something that Watchdog needed to get involved in? So um, there were a lot of appeals and uh, reports of medical uh, equipment and medicine shortages around the country, floating around social media. And we wanted to get a broader picture about what was actually happening. So we decided to create this simple Google form, uh, send it across to everyone we knew inside the national healthcare system, just to gauge what it was like throughout the country. So we have so far gotten around 50 responses. Ordinarily, we would be happy about having a lot of responses to our questionnaires, but this is a bit of a bitter pill. This means we have a massive, massive medical shortage and things are getting worse by the day. So um, the data we're seeing already, uh, I mean, we haven't published the full list yet, but what you're seeing on the back end already is indicating that there is a major crisis. 
Yeah, so we have been live for less than 48 hours and we have around 50, 50 responses from doctors from national hospitals around the country. And every single one of these lists has around 10 different items in there. So we're trying to standardize as much as possible. We're trying to cut through the chaos and put some order into this, but it's extremely depressing and I think we are heading to a bigger crisis. Personally, I'm terrified because um, I was actually outside of the country for a couple of weeks. I have to come back earlier because my dad's heart decided to suddenly stop working. So at a personal level, I'm worried if we'll have drugs for the next month. So he has enough drugs for, the, for a month's time, but after that, we'll probably have to figure out a way to procure these His medicines, medicine. essential medicines. Yeah. And uh, this is where it really hits home as well. Uh, thanks, Nisal. Uh, one more question before I let you go. How are we hoping that people will use uh, sort of Watchdog's registry of medicines that are in like critical shortage? So we are still figuring out what exactly we can do. So we are talking to multiple people inside the health ministry and different organizations who are involved in procuring drugs, procuring medical equipment who have experience doing this because this is not something, it's not like a dry rations pledge where you can actually collect things from modern citizens. Every single item, for an example, one item on one of our list is morphine. As an ordinary citizen, you can't procure morphine. Type A classified. Yeah, even if you can, I don't think that's actually legal. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, Misal Peria Peruma, our CTO, uh, and uh, the architect behind our website and app as well. May I add a note and say go download the app? It's on Google Play. Yeah. And check out our new website, please. And uh, we'll be up in the uh, Apple stores also? As soon as Apple go, like, accelerates our review process, we'll be It's in Apple's to... hands. It's in Apple's hands. Thank you very much, Nisal Peria Peruva, CTO. What I want to implore our listeners to do is hold on to that money because what we are trying to do is assess demand and you know, when we say we've got 50 doctors writing in, these people are from different hospitals. Mm. And by hospital, we've got lists of medicines that, I mean, right now it's incredibly depressing to look at because this form is so damn long. Yeah. And as Nisal pointed out, many of these drugs are difficult to get, difficult to procure, and also getting them through customs is difficult. Mm. And also, well-meaning donations direct to the point are dangerous in a medical crisis mm. because firstly you might be causing a shortage in your local area there are distributors who can get this stuff you so you need to go through these channels secondly this country has medical infrastructure for distributing these things mm. around the way in a crisis situation and we've been in contact and we've with been dr. in contact Hamdani yes and, uh, we've been in contact with dr Hamdani. and uh, they, this infrastructure these people empowered to actually do this stuff exist because what the, the thing we really need to avoid is what happened when we were running, uh, 
I was running flood relief in 2016 or so, where we would say, you know, this place needs this many packets, this many milk packets, this many this. While many places got fed, we managed to keep something like 600 families fed overall. Uh, at the end of the day, when you put a call out, people start responding to it. Mm. They respond to it to the point where we had butt packets going to waste. We had powdered milk that would never reach the ultimate people, but were pilfered by people in the middle and resold. Mm. That situation with medicine is going to be incredibly dangerous. So what I want to do is urge all the wonderful listeners we have, hold on to your pockets for a bit. By the end of the week, we will try to get this thing out, which is a map of demand right mm. now. That's what we're going to be doing, demand side mapping. We will also give you links of organizations that we have called and we have vetted government and civil society that you can reach out to and you can say, I want to give X amount to this. Some of these people we know, I mean, there's someone right now who reached out last night. They're bringing their hand carrying neonatal, they're hand carrying the tubes mm. required for essentially, you know, little children in yeah. surgery as neonatal care. They're hand carrying yeah. tubes through the airport. So there is some level of ninja shit that has to be done. There's some level of awareness of customs and how they operate. There's some level of legality that you need to jump through. There are people well qualified to do that. We will vet them and I promise we will get those details out to you. Yeah. And that's uh, essentially the best that we can do yeah. at this moment in time. Yeah. For the record, and I want to make this very clear, Watchdog is not accepting donations for this. Yeah. Uh, we've been asked to. But the honest answer is we don't want to. We, we don't have the capacity we or just the qualification to do it. We're yes. not healthcare professionals, we're not pharmacists. Uh, what we can do is uh, collect data and help you understand. Data scientists and data visualizers here. Uh, we've got a great team of journalists uh, with their pulse, uh, sort of with their fingers on the pulse. Yeah. And uh, what we can do is show you what the situation is like. Yeah. And on moving from that serious note to a light note, here's uh, Jayanganania Kara to uh, outro us. Alright, take it away Jayangan. See you on the next episode of The Doghouse. Thank you for listening. Go download the app. Say it happened to me Say it happened to you Say it happened to all of us in the years that we've been through Say it happened once Say it happened some more Say it happened a long, long time ago Dear Mr. President, the well-known permanent resident The bringer of the renaissance of artwork on the walls Epitome of such elegance If we never knew negligence No need to prove no innocence Cause we lack in intelligence Now on the news they talk about the times the people facing You see the faces of the children and the pain you're making And I know you and I both know how hungry stomachs get aching Just making sure you know the picture history's catching and shading I know your family likes the luxury of only mansions I know that I'm supposed to act like nothing ever happened but it's just hard to keep my mouth shut even in the face of deadly sanctions Grandma's on the road can afford the meal they're planning So take a look at all the people in the lines are standing So folks are holding place where families still left in fragments And I know you and I both know how broken hearts react To seeing the man who broke it on the TV not leaving the country in shambles Some folks were worshipping the very ground that you would walk on I saw some others ignore the monks cause they thought you were so strong And now they up at night just wondering how they went so wrong Keeping me up at night is finding the words of how they fill in the song so try to have a little heart for the people who brought you back from the brink of an existence history would never likely smile or remember to think of. I know my gravestone will be 
the hands of the gifts of the same gods who gave me the sight to see how this country would finally lift off. I know it's hard to maintain civility when you've been pissed off. Imagine what it took to create the path to express what I think of. So maybe it's time we step out onto the streets and take it a whiff of what's been cooking in hearts and minds and a war with them we're finally rid of. Till then I like to sit down at the border around the corner speaking to the angel who's been watching from my shoulder noting mourners right to warn her cause of former ties we made while riding like a roller coaster made from the dawns of an unconformist woes I told her then she raged like a taco burner till I said let's not be sober those were the magic words I noted so I started in October felt the murmur from the heart and tore off all the armor gap of rushes of like salt and that's how she knew how this heart gets warmer say it happened to me say it happened to you say it happened to all of us in the years that we've been through say it happened once Say it happens on